What does success mean to you as an artist? How should you go about setting your goals? How can you define your own version of music career success? That's what we're going to be looking at in this episode of the New Music Industry Podcast. chatting with CD Baby president, Joel Andrew. How are you today, Joel? I'm pretty well. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. It looks like you've been at CD Baby for a long time and have filled various roles. I would love to an overview of your experience and evolving experience so far. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I've been at CD Baby since 2003. Started in the mailroom, opening mail. Uh, I was a touring musician at uh, starving musician, that sort of thing. And uh, in between tours, uh, CD Baby was a great place for me to come and just kind of pick up some work when I needed to. And then uh, my job was uh, CD Baby had, initially it was to open mail and then to kind of build some shelves and those sorts of things because CD Baby was selling CDs at the time uh, very heavily. Uh, That was our main business line. But in 2003, uh, CD Baby had just signed the first independent contract with iTunes. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of the five majors and then CD Baby in there. Uh, so this was before anybody had uh, scanned album covers, let alone digital audio files. This was still you know, pre-iTunes world. So they hired me or my next gig was to work through the night and scan and rip and digitize all the CDs uh, that were in the warehouse. It was about 30, 35,000 titles total. There were about four of us who would just kind of come in at night and digitize all the albums uh, through that uh, you know, while being a touring musician, I kind of wanted a little bit more out of uh, out of life. I, I wanted more than some couches to kind of crash on. So um, always was looking for more work at the company. And eventually they had me uh, talking with some of our customers, some of our artists that would call in, I speak Spanish. Mm. Uh, they didn't have anybody that speaks Spanish there. So I started taking those calls initially And that's when I found out like, oh, what I had learned from being a touring musician the whole time uh, is really applicable for the customers that are calling in, the artists that are calling in to CD Baby. So I started, uh, I just love talking to artists all day anyways. So it was really good for me and easy, Uh, really enjoyed it. And then um, because I enjoyed talking with artists so much and I think uh, knew how to resolve problems, I took a lot of the escalated calls. Uh, Not that CD Baby had anything wrong with it, but, uh, you know, just people get escalated sometimes. So I talked more and more with, uh, just escalated. So that's all I was doing was talking to, uh, pretty, um, uh, artists who just needed a solution that I was ready to f- help them find. And sometimes they're lawyers, uh, cause they would go a little nuclear. So I was doing customer service, talking with a lot of lawyers. And then that's when they started thinking that I was CD baby's lawyer, which I definitely wasn't, but I thought, Hey, I bet I could do this lawyer thing. So while at CD baby and customer service, I started, uh, I finished up my undergrad at the local community college and state university, and then eventually went to the law school uh, that was here in town. So did all this through the night school and working full time at CD Baby, talking with artists the whole time. And about halfway through law school, so as a as an evening student, it's a four year program. Halfway through, uh, CD Baby found out that hey, I'd probably be pretty good at looking at some of these contracts. I go over contracts all day with the artists. May as well start looking at those as well. These would be the contracts with partners like 
Apple and Spotify and those sorts of things. So I said, sure. So, uh, that was fun for me. Got to do that as a law student and start cracking into these contracts. And that's when I started moving from customer service into more of the like licensing and business development world. And then I uh, kept doing that for a long time. And eventually, like uh, all good lawyers that work in the music industry have to do was you have to pick whether or not you're doing law or you're doing business. Uh, business affairs is something that's very uh, common in the music industry that's not necessarily common in other industries. And so I really liked the business affairs side. I liked the negotiations and meeting with, uh, you know, uh, these potential partners and helping them come up with solutions based off of CD Baby's catalog. Um, and so that's when I just kind of focused more on business, a little less on law. We got to hire an attorney that came in and actually knew what he was doing. Uh, and so through that process, did that for a number of years and, um, Eventually, we were acquired, and my boss, who was our CEO at the time, moved up to the holding company, and that was, you know, great opportunity for Joel, who'd been at the company for 18 years as a touring <laughs> musician, who, you know, basically grew up at the company. He was like, yeah, let's, he'd be a great fit for president. And so, October of last year, I took over the president role, and it's the coolest thing that I can imagine uh, to. Uh, to be at the company for as long as I have to kind of grow up there both personally and professionally and to still get to work with the types of creators that and, and artists that I've loved working with for, you know, this whole time. It's, it just feels really right. First of all, congratulations on your <laughs> new you. position. And second of all, I'm sure there's some listeners going, you made the leap from musician to law to business. Like this seems a little crazy to me. What, how does that work? What were you yeah, passionate about that? that's a good question. Uh, so I was the bass player and mm. like most bands, there's somebody who just has a little more time than the rest of the people. Uh, whether it's, you know, I was really fast in the studio or I was just sitting in the back of the van or whatever these things were. I just had time to think about the business, the band in a different way than the other, uh, than my fellow bandmates got to. I knew pretty early on growing up from a growing up in an artist uh, family household dad's a graphic designer my sister works in textiles those sorts of things um that uh i knew that i that every band was really uh, a micro business or every artist is really a micro business so that made sense to me early on and i had the time to really consider it so as i was stepping into the the world at cd baby and talking with artists that's one of the first things that i would always say when you know, they would just say, well, what should I know as an independent musician or what should I be aware of? It's like, well, number one, you're a micro business. So you need to think of yourself that way. And you might have to pay taxes and you might have to register with your state. And you might be able to write off your guitar strings and all those sorts of things. So those things were always important to me and made sense to me. And because I was in a band that I saw that, you know, there was, a, you know, my bandmates were talented at other things. Uh, I was the talent for the business side and that made sense to me. They were the talent for, I don't know, uh, great marketing campaigns or uh, actually doing the accounting, uh, those sorts of things. So it was just really easy for me to see that, like, there's more to this artist world, this artist industry uh, than just being the artist and the talent. So, yeah, focusing on business or law, it was all it all kind of made sense that I my brain worked in that environment uh, to complement the skills and talents of the people that were around me. And I still get to do that here, even as the president, uh, as a boss of the company, 
is I get to work uh, around a number of people who are talented at different things than I am. I think Daniel Amos's guitarist was literally a rocket scientist. I could have some <laughs> of the details there wrong, but you know, those types of people do exist. <laughs> They're talented and they have a mind for something else. Yeah. And I and really encourage um, bands to think about that, like who in their band is that person or who, maybe all of them are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I see uh, real big because it is a micro business and sometimes it grows to a quite large business uh, and things get serious and, you know, money starts flowing and all that sort of stuff. And then it becomes like a full fledged business. Um, I see a lot of talent out there and musicians who just don't quite have the, maybe the vocabulary or the, the structured uh, discipline of like how these are business decisions, but playing a show and selling a t-shirt is a business and uh, playing a show and being paid to perform. That's a, you know, a form of license. Uh, There's a ton of parallels left and right, at least in our system of how we, uh, if there's an industry around it, such as the music industry or the creator industry, there's a lot of business going on and talented, super, you know, better business people than I am and better, you know, just think that all they are is a bass player when really they're quite sophisticated business people. Hmm. Now, as an interviewer, I have to pry a little. I'm wondering sure. if you had any interactions with Derek Sivers in the early days and any anecdotes you could safely relate. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so there was Derek Sivers and uh, John Stoip, who was kind of the number two at the company, uh, interacted with Derek quite a bit, mostly interacted with John, who was kind of the guy who was running the biz. So Derek got to go be the face and the vision and all those sorts of things. And then John was kind of at home managing managing us a uh, rowdy bunch. Um, but yeah, I got to interact with Derek. I didn't, it, it, I don't know if, uh, I've heard about this with other people that were employed by gurus, if you will. Uh, I think, you know, he's a, clearly a guru. Uh, that you don't know that you're around someone like that. Right. And so, you know, here's this guy who, you know, my counterparts in the industry know Derek through his books and his podcasts and his TED talks uh, and and think of like, wow, guru. Meanwhile, I'm like, why does this, why is this guy's favorite pizza, pizza hut or Domino's or something (laughs) like that? And he wouldn't stop talking about how great Domino's was. He's like, what a crazy boss pay us more. Uh, it was a different, it, it just wasn't what we thought it was. And so now um, I'm a professional in the industry and a lot of people hear CD Baby and go like, oh, Derek. Uh, I was definitely, um, I'm definitely tied to some of his, uh, a bunch of his successes at the business. Uh, a large part of my mission or ethos of how I want to run the business is tied back to the way that he started things. Uh, he awesome. was, I don't want to, it has a negative connotation and understandably so, but a cult of personality. He was, you know, the, the center of a lot of misfit, uh, misaligned, uh, you know, disenfranchised, unempowered artists who found somebody who was willing to be their champion. Mm. And that DNA is in CD baby still. And I re- recognize it and respect it. Uh, it's super important to us. Um, so those are the, had some, yeah, weird, always funny interactions because, you know, he was my boss's boss's boss type thing that was, again, wouldn't stop talking about dominoes. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I didn't interact with him a whole lot. Uh, 
it was more this other guy, John, and a few other people that were kind of managing the business. I love how you elaborated on that. And I have a wealthy mentor who, for some reason, loves very ordinary breakfast places, like truck stops and Denny's and stuff like that. Yeah, I think the way he – because I asked, and I was like, what are you doing? And, uh, I think his thing was he was very much into it's just the same anywhere in the world. It's Domino's is like perfect pizza. Uh, Budweiser is perfect beer because nobody puts the type of effort into – perfecting global distribution of pizza. You know, it's just a different perspective on kind of like what is quality and what is perfect mm. and all that kind of stuff. But he would, uh, he would frequently wear like the, the company t-shirts or the band t-shirts that we would receive. Uh, you know, we have a warehouse, so, uh, you know, they send us CDs. They still do, but back in the day it was a lot of CDs. Um, just in case any listener doesn't know, we do digital distribution, that, yes. you know, streaming, those sorts of things. Uh, monetization of places like Facebook. We still sell CDs, but back in the day, we used to get merch from our fans and artists and musicians that just loved. Uh, they would send in their CDs and they'd send us a, a T-shirt or something like that. And that was frequently what you would see the founder of CD Baby wearing was just a band shirt running around trying to help out wherever he could. It was kind of cool vibe. Yeah, I've been a long time CD Baby artist. I interviewed Derek right after he sold CD Baby. And we have also had Kevin Bruner on the show twice. So <laughs> there's a deep, deep connection here. And Can I uh, ask what you remember from that interview with Derek? Because that was an interesting oh, yeah. time. That was uh, – Derek was – I mean, it, it's the classic story of like a, a startup that really hits something to the employees that means something different than what it does to the founder. So to my recollection, and understandably so, was that – he saw this as like my project, his project that he started in his, in his closet and was like, this is pretty cool. Let's do some really cool stuff. And then uh, as it grew and grew, especially with the employees, the employees started going, hey, we want these, you know, we want to be treated like professionals and we want this to be a, a real business. But in his mind, it was like, well, this is kind of like a cool thing for artists. It's a hobby thing. And there was just kind of a, a misalignment of vision of what the business was supposed to be or could be. And I just remember him really getting kind of burnt out by the end. Uh, yeah, any recollections or takeaways from that from that interview? Yeah, you know, he's been very public in, in stating pretty much exactly what you said, that after a while he just got tired of being asked questions. And so it, w it was his imperative to try to systematize the business as much as he could so that he could just be in flow all the time, which I kind yeah. of understand. The biggest takeaway for me because I was kind of digging for what is something I can offer musicians that's worthwhile. And he basically said, marketing is always going to be in demand. That's an area of the music business that there's always going to be need for. Yeah. The, uh, the way we talk about it internally on kind of like that shift was, uh, what is it? The settlers, the pioneers and the city planners and, you know, you need really smart people at each phase of those kind of pieces. But uh, Derek was very much a pioneer and needed to go. And so it, it totally makes sense to me that the next thing that he did that I remember, at least, was like this muckrakers yes. business where it was like artists who had downtime in the back of the van that could do some email work for you. Why not? Uh, and then another one was like writing some like business etiquette books, international business etiquette books that was like you just 
uh, let that guy go be creative. Uh, Let him go do that stuff. And then you had these other people, like I I would consider myself part of it. That was the the more settlers phase that were kind of like, hey, we need something different than just always figuring out what's uh, next and what's the most creative, innovative piece. We still have to do that stuff as a business. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, that guy can't be contained (laughs) by (laughs) strict meeting schedules and yeah, just answering questions all the time. In contrast, though, I love that stuff Mm. uh, because I get to serve the mission and I know what we're about. And so any question that's like, oh, this is starting to get tiring or a little fatiguey or something like that is like, well, we're helping independent musicians. That's what I learned from Derek. We're still doing that. Still super important. It's arguably the most important expressive piece, uh, you know, from uh, artists that they've created in the last year, if not the last month. And we got to treat it like the special mojo that it is that's still there with Derek, but I don't mind answering questions all day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Derek is very much the Tim Ferriss or Seth Godin or Russell Brunson type. I know I just referenced three very distinct personalities, but I'm kind of referring to their creative output, right? Like they're just nonstop. And I I tried to follow that model for a while. (laughs) I don't know if the uh, 16 hour days are for me, but you know, I, I get a lot done either way. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. It made sense to me that in that kind of world, there was a lot of that attention for the four hour work week. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it, because their brain is on 100% of the time. And so to just feel like they have a focused output of just a few hours a week, they're working hard the rest of the time as well. So I, I, uh, anytime somebody, I love talking with people about it. What does that actually mean for them? Because, uh, and this was a big thing that Derek totally bought into, uh, it, uh, I think from Tim, um, was the first introduction, but it was like, what, yeah, how does that actually work when your brain never turns off? So yeah. like, that's the thing of being, a, especially like a senior leader in a business is you don't really have downtime. You're always mm. thinking of like, yes, you know, this is an important thing, real missional work. It's necessary for our society to have independent musicians continuing to be heard. Yeah. So I don't stop. Think I I could never boil that into four. It might be four hours of the office or four hours of actually doing emails. But thinking about it uh, on a road trip, thinking about it, uh, you know, at band practice, I'm thinking about it at all the places. I just don't know how those people are able to shut it down and boil it <laughs> into just those four hours. Yeah, I think, you know, a four-hour workday, maybe, just because that's yeah. probably the maximum amount of time we can be super productive in deep work. But yeah, yeah four-hour You can't step week. away from your gig. Like, you, maybe you step away from the mic, you step away from the camera, but you're always thinking about how can things improve or you have these responsibilities that you have to hit. And uh, It's an aspiration. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I understand the, the, the attraction for it, but I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. Always excited (laughs) to hear somebody else's perspective on it. Absolutely. Well, it's actually sort of part of the DNA of what I do as well. The four hour work week, you know, and Napoleon's Hills think and grow rich and stuff like that. It's definitely made its way into my life and being a digital nomad and stuff like that. But yeah, the music business is a hardworking business. I haven't, I haven't found a way to (laughs) narrow my life down to four hours a week i don't know would you want to i don't think so i i think you know i enjoy it like i the the pieces on the edges where i'm having a beer with a buddy and something goes off in my mind that's like oh yeah mm. 
that's awesome. Or seeing a live show, uh, which has been hard over the last, you know, year, year and a half, but every now and then there'd be something at the park, even that was just kind of like, that's just inspiration and and muse comes from anywhere. And I don't know. I don't, I don't want to shut that off yet. Yeah. No, what immediately came to mind for me was a recent experience at the DIY Musician Conference 2019. Before pandemic, I went down and met up with a whole bunch of people I'd either had already met in person or met online or had some contact with and ended up sitting downstairs in the hotel lobby, drinking beers and exchanging thoughts and ideas. Just like you said, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be back. I'm waiting for it to be back. Yeah. I want to go down to Austin again. but Me too. I'm very excited for it. Today's political climate is a little intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. One of the most recent changes to CD Baby, like you say, you still sell CDs, but the online store as we knew it is kind of gone, right? Yeah. And my thought was like you're probably wanting to focus more heavily and just intentionally on music distribution. Is that kind of the the basic thought process that's the output but the Mm. real thought process is what do independent musicians need Mm. and what's our way to be an advocacy our strategy to achieve those things is through digital tools and technology artist promotional tools distribution of your catalog or whatever it is to places like spotify those are just the outputs but again it's you know we know Artists, that's what DIY musician conference. Uh, we lose money on it every year, yeah. but we learn, we get to engage with artists. We learn so much from it. Uh, it's an educational piece, which, you know, the, when artists succeed, that's better for everybody, including us. Uh, and that's kind of the mission of it. But uh, to just sit and get firsthand feedback from the artist about like, Hey, the MLC is really confusing to me. What do I actually need to know about it? Uh, it's like, well, you know, maybe that's a blog post or maybe that turns into a, a digital tool or maybe that turns into like a whole separate brand. Uh, what was another one was like a, our sister company that uh, a bunch of us kind of co-run is called Soundrop, which focuses on video game cover song artists, let alone just cover song artists, serial releasers in general. It's like, uh, th- that really came from a number of different steps, but it's like, what do, what do artists need? And they're in a different space. So what a cover song artist needs for, you know, uh, a cover song artist, that's a TikTok that records their track, wants to get into the music distribution industry or in, into the music industry. What they need is something very different than more, uh, what CD baby focuses on. So it's the, the strategy is, uh, again, there or the, 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 the thought process, it, or the mission is the same, but it's just kind of, yeah, the strategy turns into how can we do this at scale? How can we support uh, artists? So uh, an- another one uh, other than Sound Drop and DIY Musician Conference uh, that focuses on that, a big one for us is called Stages. Um, so what it is, is it's a CD Baby platform. Uh, it's, so it's available to CD Baby artists. Uh, there's a kind of form that you fill out that you self-identify whether or not you want some maybe additional support from CD Baby. Uh, The reason that I think that, uh, so some of our competitors do it, they call it upstreaming. Uh, Other companies just focus on that upstream space that are kind of like trying to figure out, well, how do we take somebody from maybe, uh, you know, a few hundred listens a month uh, up to a few thousand listens or maybe millions or something like that. Um, but those upstreamers are really focusing on uh, an elitism model of 
Like, how do we make the most off of the people that make the most for us? And how do we keep them really happy so they don't leave and all those sorts of things? Versus stages is built off of a, an ethos that's, well, we want as many artists using stages as possible. And if it happens to be playlist pitching or lyric curation or whatever these different things are, that's how we are. That's what's driving our strategy of iterating on on uh, stages. So CD Baby stages. So we um, are just... That's where we find our innovation is in in a opportunity to go. Well, what do independent musicians need at scale? And this goes back to like Derek days of, you know, you don't. Uh, it's a hard game in to service independent long tail artists who maybe make a hundred dollars a year, maybe two hundred or a thousand a year. You're not uh, you're not beating off all the VC investors who are trying to figure out how to support a hundred dollar a year artist. Yeah. So Derek figured out a way to support them at scale was, well, let's get 25,000 of them together and then, you know, go pitch it to iTunes and see what would happen there. Uh, and so that's still our kind of ethos and philosophy is what can we do at scale? So stages works, uh, upstreaming works for our competitors because they get to make more money off of those, you know, elite artists. But again, stages, we want to be available for all CD Baby artists. And we're just kind of iterating and then providing its guiding direction on what else we should be providing at CD Baby. So there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, so stages is a big one. Back to Sound Drop and DIY Con. Uh, we have this uh, release plan generator, uh, which I really like. So it's a pretty easy tool for artists to go out and use. And if you just look up the CD Baby release plan generator... It just is uh, based off of all the information from all the artists that we ever receive. Uh, time management is a big one. Scheduling is a big one for independent musicians. If you're a musician, don't feel bad if, if you're always late to practice. That's just what <laughs> happens with us. But So we put out a, a form. So you enter in uh, at the CD Baby release plan generator. You enter in a few bits of data. And it tells you, like, this is what you should be planning on. This is when you should be focusing on pre-saves. This is when you should be going and collecting your, your, you know, your Spotify IDs. This is when you should be starting to reach out to your fan base to promote. This is when maybe you should be doing some digital ads. So uh, that's really powerful stuff that um, I know. I've learned from my own personal experiences as a touring musician. But to just post it and make it available for free to independent musicians was like, that's our solution. That's how we're doing digital tools. That's where we're hitting our strategy of providing digital solutions for independent musicians at scale because that's kind of what our mission is and how we help. Yeah. And it kind of segues nicely into my next question as well. You know, it sounds like you're a big believer in independent artists defining their own version of success and not getting caught up in duplicating what major labels are doing. So how would you recommend independent artists go about setting their benchmarks and goals? Ooh, that's a, uh, (laughs) (laughs) introspection, asking what you want from this Mm. and and it changes. Cause when I started, uh, you know, when I was like 15 years old and picked up a guitar, what I wanted from that experience is really different than what I want from my experience now. And it probably changed every like one or two years, uh, especially when I was touring heavily, uh, I just, yeah, probably every few months it would change for me of what, what I really wanted out of being a musician or what I really wanted out of being an artist. And, and, and that's a really complicated thing uh, to look introspectively and go, what do I really want? What, what's really 
valuable or powerful. Uh, yes, I would like a million dollars from my music. That's really cool. But my concern, uh, it, it, as you know, I published a, a recent kind of op-ed in, in Billboard about uh, you know using major label yardsticks to measure the success of independent musicians. Well, what I was really trying to speak to was um, I knew a lot of musicians who were in their mid twenties or so that felt like they were not going to cut it as uh, full-time touring musicians. They just realized that they weren't going to make enough money. And so they quit. And they're some of the best musicians that I ever played with. They're definitely uh-huh. better than I ever was, but their gears getting dusty if they still have it, or maybe they someday want to give it to their kids. Life comes at you fast. I get it. Uh-huh. Um, you got responsibilities and living on the road and, you know, eating cans of tuna for lunch, uh, <laughs> that gets old quickly. Yeah. But, um, what was a bummer was these were musicians. These were creators who now, you know, for my generation, you know, 15, 20 years later now we're going, those people are, aren't create musicians anymore. They don't something in this, in this process where they loved what they were doing hit some sort of financial point where it's no longer viable. And then they gave up and now they're, you know, you know, they're happy and focused on all these other things, but I think that they're missing out on their musician self that they want to be. And so I I don't think uh, what I, what I think about when you're defining what that concept of success is, is what is it for that, you know, person, my friend who is in their mid twenties going, what could have happened for them, for them just to remember that they're still a musician, whether they're a touring musician, whether they're a professional musician, whether they're a dentist that also happens to be a musician, uh, uh, you know, a garbage disposal pickup person who also happens to be a musician, a, a parent, uh, a teacher, whatever these different things are, that they're still a musician. And so it's discouraging when I realized that I'm not going to be a multi-million dollar full-time touring musician and I had to go get a job. I'm lucky because I got to work at CD Baby and met so many other independent musicians that said, hey, you can do something better. Uh, you don't have to focus on money. Uh, I met, uh, gosh, what was it? I met all sorts of hustlers and people <laughs> setting up like crazy gigs. Uh, people who would just like play uh, like dinner parties and just be background music. Uh, one of the bands that I ended up being in was we never did a, we never made money off of our music, but we would, we would play hotel, uh, hotel lobbies uh, only if they would put up the 12 of us. So six of us with our partners and sometimes a couple of kids on the weekend. And so we would never get paid. It was never a financial thing, but it was us playing music for like an hour or two together. And then they would put us up for the weekend. And so there's a ton of ways to validate that you're still a musician that has nothing to do with whether or not you have 6 million monthly listeners or whether or not you're bringing in millions of dollars. You are just as valid of a musician who deserves to be heard just as well as anybody else. So another example was, uh, and I, I'm just lucky to have grown up around this stuff at CD Baby. I, I understand uh, it's hard for other people to hear these narratives, and that's my job <laughs> is to get these narratives out. Is So I was sitting around a campfire uh, end of last summer, and a friend of a friend, there was maybe 12 of us outdoors, all socially distanced, and, uh, and somebody said like, hey, I listened to this track from a band of mine that never took off. Nobody ever heard it. And they just said, hey, I didn't know that, like, you were doing all this cool stuff with the bass. That's, like, really cool. 
And that was arguably the most fulfilling moment for me of my summer was just to get a friend of a friend to acknowledge that I did well on like uh, on a ba- couple of baselines. And that's, yeah, that's not a major label yardstick for success. But to me, that was really cool. That uh, uh, I think of the people who will never have that experience and what would they be willing to pay to have an experience like that? And from a perspective of, um, you know, of having ex- experienced something like that, it's, it's priceless. And I just want other musicians to share their stories about what was impactful for them because I hear them all day at CD Baby, all day long, especially when I was on the phones back in the day, I would hear these stories left and right about how like I played this gig, you know, there was like 40 people there, but it was the best show I've ever played in my life. And it was just crazy. Everybody was super connected. It's like, that's not major label yardstick success. Uh, And it kept them going. And so that's what I'm trying to figure out is like, how do we keep these people who feel crushed by the industry, who don't feel like they're going to make the type of money that they dreamed of uh, when they were younger, um, still playing music? Because we need it. It's still powerful. It's still important to them. I think humans are musical. And when they are prevented from being musical, I think you get into mental health stuff, uh, societal impacts. I think that um, it's really important to play music. And I think companies like CD Baby and even some of our competitors, you know, still have a, are thinking about like, we need more people to continue thinking of themselves as musicians, not just for the bottom line or for the business, but for the societal component of that's the society that I want to live in is people who are expressive, people who are exploring their feelings through their music, connecting to something different than just what's happening and connecting their brain to something different than just their body. And um, yeah, that's like real powerful, important stuff that if you compare yourself to Beyonce and the success that Beyonce has, and you go like, well, I'll never get there. Then it's like, well, you're missing all this really good stuff that you could have anyways. Um, That stuff's important to me. Oh, that was all. uh, Let's see here. Just uh, people said, um, really lofty. I mean, this is also the part of the the musician that I see, or the artist, any art, not just music. Is you know we're aspirational and we want something, and we have a big dream, and that was maybe what motivated us from the beginning. Uh, so I don't undervalue that, and and I'm not saying settle. Uh, I'm just saying don't lose sight of the good stuff that you're getting in the process, um, because. If you end up like me and not <laughs> killing it as an as a you know full time professional <laughs> musician and have to get a day job, I still uh, I still play in bands. Uh, I still keep up my I still write songs. Uh, I still feel nervous when I perform. Uh, I still uh, take too long to record an album that I probably should have released last year, but I'm still like taking forever to do it. I'm still doing all those things that I remember that I was doing when I was trying to do this full time, but I can do them both. Uh, I'm really lucky again, because I at growing up at CD baby and the types of musicians that I was around, maybe it was a bit of the Portland vibe, but I know it happens in other towns as well, that there was a lot of, you know, uh, it was easy for us to see from the, maybe the grunge and kind of some of the post punk artists that, you know, they helped us really dial in on what mattered 
And that was to like play music with buddies or to be expressive by yourself. And whether you're in front of an audience or not in front of an audience, just to be what you are musically and continue doing it is just like, yeah, powerful stuff that we don't lose. Yeah. Creating a world or supporting a world where artists feel like they matter and can continue to do their work. That really hits home for me. I was thinking about that earlier today. This is the big debate that I always have is, is everybody a musician? Cause I know that there's a lot of people that, um, I don't know that that doesn't resonate with and I get it. And I'm just like, is it that they just need to play their first live show and then they get it? Or is it just, yeah, this resonates with different people differently. Oh yeah. That's a super arbitrary qualitative sort of thing. And it's the kind of conversation that happens at open mics all the time. Like when do you consider a musician serious? When are they pro? When are they going to go full time? Do they have to be making money to be considered a pro? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, that's what's cool about CD Baby's platform. I mean, or in the platform that I'm able to stand on uh, and share is I know artists who make uh, a lot of money and they don't feel like they're they're valid. Huh. And I know artists who make almost no money, probably lose money, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm a musician. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, you know, I I made a dollar. I got free beer at that at that dive bar that nobody came out to right. listen to my music." At, and I'm totally a professional and it's it does there's no rule book. There's no, you know, platinum record thing that you're going to get in the mail that tells you you're a professional or you're doing it. Uh, it's, it's, it, that stuff doesn't matter unless you want it to matter. It, I'm, I don't want to discourage the people who set those goals because those are important goals, but it's not, it's not, up to somebody else. And that's why, again, back to the introspective, like what do you really want from this stuff? You're in a lot more, you have a lot of control over your success or sense of success. It's not just from the outsiders. Yeah. And digging a little deeper into that, it seems like many artists have been feeling the crunch over the last 18 months with pandemic lockdowns and the resulting shift in life. This is not something any of us in the business like to see, but I also think we both know an artistic career is still very viable today. What are your thoughts on artists navigating these strange times? Oh, it's tricky and it's still tricky and it's going to be tricky for a while. It felt like, uh, at least to me, like things were opening up when I started getting the emails from the bands that I, uh, whose tours were canceled last year that they were telling me that they're coming back. And it's a bummer that I'm seeing that some of them, a total, total, bummer that some of them are starting to email again and say, Hey, we got to take that off the, the plate again. It's a hard thing to n- navigate yeah. myself. I'm having a tough time just to, I guess, be vulnerable. Uh, the main band that I'm in that I'm, I've that I've been, or that I've mainly been looking forward to uh, getting together again to start practicing. Uh, we just have other priorities right now Mm. and i love that music and i love those people that i play music with but it's really hard to think about all these other obligations like it was nice when i was on the tracks and things were moving forward now that things stopped and then to restart them again is hard really 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 hard uh for someone who lives this stuff it's hard i can't imagine for somebody who's maybe starting for the first time or you know only got so far uh, but we're also, uh, you know, musicians and we're going to figure out how to play and we're going to figure out how to, 
you know, I've, uh, I've seen so many bands play in, in an environment where it's like a band isn't supposed to play there. Uh, so like Voodoo Donuts, which is here in Portland, Oregon, they have this funny little like fridge space that up above it in their old building was like maybe a <laughs> three by five space up and up up in the rafters and bands would play up there. Bands are going to figure out where they can play. Artists are going to figure out how to perform and still connect with, with their fans. It's hard to get back out there, but once you're there and you get that momentum going, uh, whether it's just performing on Twitch or doing some live shows on, you know, on Facebook or something, um, we're figuring it out. I think that that's another big part of it is over the last year, there have been enough artists out there who have figured out some of the basics of how to continue performing and engaging that that's what I look for is what's this new space where people are trying something uh, to, to perform and connect with fans. So it's out there, but I also very much resonate with it's hard to get that going again now. Tough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to take some time. I think it's important for artists right now to, focused on digital marketing or perhaps other avenues that might still allow them to be sustainable too. And creating things that it could be complementary to live performance, obviously, because we don't know exactly how that's going to pan out. Yeah. And there's a big difference between the performing artist and the recording artist. Yeah. Um, I am definitely a performer. I like to record, but I just want to play live. Hmm. Uh, and that's what my skill is. And uh, the other recording, you know, it was a little bit easier for the recording artist. Uh, not easier. Don't get me wrong. It was still hard for everybody. But the recording artist wasn't missing that, you know, maybe they could set up their, their, their rig at home a little bit easier or finally got it going so they can keep kicking out their, their recordings. Uh, but it's a little, yeah, a little different uh, and harder for me now to try to record because uh, I just am. I've always been so self-critical of my recordings mm. uh, to just start getting going on them again is, is pretty tough, but I'm seeing performers perform digitally and I'm seeing, uh, you know, recording artists, they've been doing it well or decently and figuring things out, but there's lots of tools, lots of options. If you know what you're trying to get as a musician, there's probably some solution out there for you to help you get that in the meantime. Mm. Now I have a few Tim er Tim Ferriss esque questions for you. The yeah. The first is, what's the last YouTube video you watched? Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this will be funny or funny to me, but I'll say it. Uh, I needed some help on uh, taking or finishing a puzzle on Breath of the Wild. Uh, I committed. I told myself that when I started playing uh, Link: Breath of the Wild that. I wasn't going to look up videos because I just wanted to experience the game and struggle with stuff. But there was one that I was just like, that's it. I'm going to look up on YouTube. So that was my last YouTube video is struggling through Breath of the Wild. <laughs> I can relate to that. Sometimes I'll be playing a game that I can't figure out. So <laughs> there's always answers on YouTube. Yeah. What is your daily routine like? Uh... On a work day, uh, up about 6, 6.30, uh -huh. uh, I really like to go for jogs with my wife. She's a nurse, uh, so she works kind of crazy days. And so when she's home, we'll go exercise together. And when she's not, I'll put in a little bit of an exercise routine. 
uh, now starting to go back to the office. So I'll try to be into the office about eight o'clock or so hmm. uh, Monday through Wednesday. We're doing that hybrid work thing for a pers- uh, we're trying a couple pilots at the office to see how those go. And then just, yeah, on calls and emails starting at eight o'clock um, through kind of the day. Usually not a big breakfast guy, definitely a big coffee guy, I think, in <laughs> large part because Portland has so much coffee, so much True. delicious, delicious coffee. And then, uh, yeah, uh, usually home about three or so. Um, try to clear my mind for a few minutes. Usually jump back into work uh, right away after that just kind of moment uh, to recollect myself and just work from home. I try, uh, try to, when I'm home, I try to work from my phone, uh, mm-hmm. as much as I can just cause, uh, during pandemic I was, or when I was, uh, not able to go into the office and I was only working from home, I needed to get out of the house a lot. So that was kind of my routine was just to go for walks and work from my phone. And yeah, my, uh, I'll start cooking dinner about six o'clock or so. That's a usual weekday night is I'll start cooking five or six o'clock. Uh, wife's home usually about seven o'clock from, from her job. Uh, if she's not already home cause she works weird days and then I don't know, starting to wind down probably by nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, usually try to be asleep by 11. I guess that's my full, my full average weekday. And then because that's been so routine for the last 18 months, that's largely what my, uh, <laughs> My Saturdays and Sundays are as well. I can't help but wake up at the same time and start feeling tired about the same time. Every now and then, we'll try to. I'll try to stay up till two or something like that, just to remember the old times. And then I'll just feel like garbage for a while. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the routine. And what's the greatest challenge you've overcome in your career? Um. Probably the the self doubt questions of like, can I actually do this? Mm. Um, it, where I'm at and how I got here definitely wasn't the plan, and I yeah. don't know how somebody else could quite parallel it. It's definitely not like a path that somebody could look at, and so because of that, you know, trying to become a professional when I was, you know, a touring musician, that was tricky trying to become an academic when I was just a touring musician. Uh, (laughs) That was tricky. Uh, And then, yeah, really focusing on like becoming a senior executive and eventually president. Those things have been hard things to, to accept sometimes. Mm. Um, It made sense. And I am so lucky to work for a company that really has a mission and a purpose and a, place. Uh, so when I feel discouraged, it's easy to just pull out our mission statement and feel like, yeah, this is what it's about. But those are the hardest ones was a number of times. I just thought this isn't going to work or this plan is a, 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 a moonshot. This isn't, this isn't what I should be really doing. Uh, but then it happens <laughs> and I'm glad it does that it pushes through. Hmm. And what's the greatest victory you've experienced in your career? I don't know about victory. Uh, I would 
I would say the continued ability to service a sector that I find really important. Uh, you know, I, I get, I make good decisions and I, and, and that sort of stuff happens. Uh, and I'm, and I'm proud of those, but I think the biggest victory is just like picking a, picking the right pony at the beginning, 18 years ago and uh, having a great place to grow up, a great place to continue working, great place that with a good mission to serve. Yeah, I, that's what I have to say. Are there any books that have helped you on your journey? Oh, so many. Mm. Gosh, and at, at different phases. I don't know if there's any one that I would highly recommend uh, above all, but I'm a big fan of Jim Collins when it mm. comes to just understanding business management. I would say the, uh, the three big ones then, uh, Jim Collins, uh, good to great Seth Godin, uh, uh, tribes, mm. and then, uh, John doors, uh, measure what matters. Those would probably be the three that really helped my professionalism chops the most, uh, in understanding what I'm doing as a professional. So coming again from the independent music or from the touring musician world. And, and we were talking about it earlier that I see really good business people in these micro businesses with their bands. They just don't have the language or, or the vocabulary or the, the structured discipline to kind of take it up to the, a bigger scale, like, like at a larger business. Um, but those three books helped me shift and frame a lot of that. Great picks. I know that the virtual DIY musician conference is coming up later this month in August. Would you yeah. like to share a little bit about that or do you have any other new developments you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, that's a big one. Hmm. So first and foremost, uh, we always have the blog going. So yes. there's uh, the DIY musician blog, the DIY musician podcast. Uh, those things are always happening. We, every year we have a one or two celebrations uh, where we all meet together as creators and musicians called the DIY Musician Conference. Uh, in 2019, you mentioned it, that was the last one that we had in person. Yeah. Uh, and in 2022, we're planning to be in Austin. Uh, but this year it's going to be all digital so or all virtual. And we're going to have experts. So all the normal years, we bring out all the experts we know, all the streaming platform specialists that we work with. So people from Spotify and YouTube come out to these sorts of things. We have big speaker, big artist speakers. Uh, I think in 2019 we had quest love and yes. uh, Daryl McDaniels from one DMC. Yep. And we have like, th it's a three day fire hose of information uh, just coming at you <laughs> about what it is to be an independent musician, how to be more successful, how to hit your, your, your dreams and, in your goals and all those sorts of things. But the virtual one this year, it's free. The usual, usually they're only like $99 or $130 for three days total yeah. anyways. So it's not like it's a real big savings here, but this year we're going to do it uh, virtually. Uh, you can just head to our website. I definitely recommend that people head to the DIY musician.com uh, website. That's our blog. You'll see information about signing up for the conference for free. We're going to have same format, uh, just virtual. So we're going to have specialists come out. Mm. So our buddies at Spotify and Facebook and those sorts of things are going to come out and speak. 
we have some huge artists. Uh, I think I'm interviewing John Gorley from Portugal, the man. We have some also uh, some kind of professionals that people would hire for management or marketing advice yeah. uh, that'll speak there as well. So it's definitely worth it because it's free. And I think it'll be really helpful for independent musicians. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time and generosity, Joel. Is there anything else I should have asked? Oh, that's a good question. No, but I have, uh, it, it, it took a lot of refrain to not just ask you questions myself. Uh, <laughs> I want you but, to, <laughs> that might be a separate you asked good questions that I was like, Oh, I wonder what your thoughts are on these things. So yeah, but thanks for having me. This was really cool. Um, it's a blast. Like I've said a couple of times, I'm, I'm so lucky to work at a company like CD yeah. baby, uh, let alone be the president. Cause I get to have conversations like this with people like you who understand the industry and what we're going after and why it matters. Uh, so thanks for the space and thanks for the platform. Absolutely. Thank you for being on the show. We just launched a new program called Elite Players All Access Pass. And what this should really be called is Digital Marketing Mindset and the Business of Music Academy for Musicians, because that's what it is. This is a new platform where you can access courses, ebooks, members only audios, a community forum, personalized coaching, archive trainings, and more. This is a premium program carrying a premium price. So it's not for everyone, but if you're ready to learn more, head on over to musicentrepreneurhq.com elite. That's E-L-I-T-E. We are currently accepting applications, but there isn't much time left. So head on over to musicentrepreneurhq.com elite. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. This has been episode 241 of the New Music Industry Podcast. I'm David Anjouit, and I look forward to seeing you on the stages of the world. Thank you for listening. Music in this episode was brought to you by Brian Young. Wherever you're listening to this right now, please consider leaving a five-star review and comment to help us get the word out about the podcast. Thank you.